You know, you got you got nice color skin. What color would you say that is? My color. The Osage. They have the worst land possible. But they outsmarted everybody. The land had oil on it. Black gold. Money flows freely here now. I do love that money, sir. <laughs> <laughs> This wealth should come to us. Their time is over. It's just gonna be another tragedy. When this money started coming, we should have known it came with something else. They're like buzzards circling our people. We're still warriors. to kill these white men who killed my family. I need you here. I am right here. You've got to take back control of your home. I was uh, sent down from Washington, D.C. to see about these murders. See what about them? See who's doing it. Expecting a miracle to make all this go away. You know they don't happen anymore. Welcome to the Strange Harbors podcast, a weekly discussion of film, television, and pop culture. My name is Jeff Zhang, and tonight I'm joined by Amir Ture and Derek Wong. So we are back after two weeks with a big episode. This is our Martin Scorsese episode on his new film, Killers of the Flower Moon. His last movie, 2019's The Irishman, came out while we had the podcast already, but we weren't doing individual film reviews at the time. Can you believe that? Amir wasn't even on the pod at that time. <laughs> I think this was right after our Watchmen pod, right? Because that was end of 2019 when it came out. Is that right? I think so. Well, I was going to say, we have talked about Martin Scorsese, one Martin Scorsese film in the past, when we did the double header. Oh, we did do The Departed. Yeah, the Departed and Infernal Affairs. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, but this is our first full big Martin Scorsese episode, right? Oh, shit. Was The Departed the first episode we ever did when we that was, started uh, doing- That was one of the early ones it when was we switched early over. On, yeah. Oh, shit. My bad. It's at least been a minute since we talked about Martin Scorsese. This movie came out last week, last Friday, and mm -hmm. it is three and a half hours long. It is one of the longest movies of his career. It seems like that's all everyone can talk about, which is kind of annoying because there's lots of things you can talk about with this movie and everyone just wants to talk about when you can go pee and why doesn't the movie let you go pee. It's not stopping you from going peeing. You can go. <laughs> it's fine. It's not a big deal. You just go see it again and see what you missed, right? 
<laughs> uh, when did you guys see this? I saw it on a Monday at 7, so I was very tired by the time I got out of it. <laughs> <laughs> went to work, went to a 7 o'clock showing, and I was like, oh man, okay, I'm in for a ride. I'm going to get out at like 11. Yeah, it's crazy because we went for a showing at 4 p.m. And by the time we got out, it was 8 p.m. The previews and everything getting seated. By the time the movie's over, it's dark. But I suggest seeing this movie in recliner seats. We went to the quad theater, which did not have recliner seats, and it was uh, a little uncomfortable by the end. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. That's your concession to the uh, length complainers. I was going to say, I saw this uh, last week as well, beginning of the week. I think it's actually been exactly a week for me, too. I think I saw it Monday afternoon. It was also like a four o'clock showing. So like, yeah, by the time you get out, it's four hours later. I'm glad we kind of took our time to get to this episode. I know we were taking a week off and then I got sick. So now we're back. We're recording this episode. I'm glad we had some time to let this movie marinate a little because it's a lot to chew on. But do you guys want to talk a little bit about Mm -hmm. Martin Scorsese? Your experiences with Martin Scorsese. I haven't re-listened to our Departed episode, clearly, from our earlier conversation (laughs) because I forgot we even (laughs) recorded it. But what are your thoughts on Scorsese? Favorite movies of his? I like the classic gangster film Scorsese. I love, obviously, Goodfellas, Casino. Mm -hmm. Those are probably... Probably one and two. I actually really like The Departed, too. Departed's also up there with those two. I mean, it's probably that triptych of gangster films, those three, mm. kind of in my pantheon for me. But, I mean, I actually do really like Wolf of Wall Street as well. And I don't know. He's just done so many really good movies. You could create, like, an entirely different top five and then have it also mm. be legit. He's just done so many good movies that you could completely select a completely different set of movies. And I'd be like, yeah, that also makes sense. You know, it's a shame that all the Marvel movies are better than anything he's ever done. But other than that, (laughs) you know, other than that, he's all right. What about you guys? What's your favorite Scorsese? I think probably I said it during our Departed episode. I mean, Departed is one of my favorite movies of his, if not one of my favorite movies of all time. There was like this run that he did that I loved, maybe starting from Gangs of New York, The Aviator, but then The Departed I like. I even like Shutter Island, big fan of Wolf of Wall Street. Mm. So yeah, there was definitely this run that I loved of his. Yeah. I mean, the guy's got no misses, really. I think he's one of the best American filmmakers we've still got. I think my favorites, I want to go in a different direction. I mean, everyone loves his gangster movies and his men behaving badly movies, you know, but I like maybe the start of that. Taxi Driver is really good. The Age of Innocence one of the best romantic dramas of all time. It's so fucking good. I think my top five would be, no particular order, Taxi Driver, The Age of Innocence, Goodfellas. You can't go wrong with Goodfellas. And I'm going to go with Bringing Out the Dead. Have you guys ever seen that? I actually haven't. It's the Nicolas Cage paramedic movie. It's like one of Scorsese's darkest movies. It's funny, I have two uh, Paul Schrader written movies on there because he wrote Taxi Driver and Bringing Out the Dead, but those are, I think, two of his darkest movies. I like them a lot. And to balance out Goodfellas, I think we'll get into this. I fucking love late period Scorsese, his last three movies. I'll have to balance that out with The Irishman, probably, but I could honestly switch it out with either Silence or Killers of the Flower Moon, to be honest, depending on what I'm feeling at the time. I think those three are, like, pretty interchangeable. Interesting mix for me, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, is that, like, a real mix, or is that, like, a 
I want to promote some of his other movies thing. I get what you mean. I think that's a real five. I think that's a real five because... That's a real top five. Yeah. You got Goodfellas in there. I think Goodfellas might be his best movie. Yeah, it's hard, but yeah, it could absolutely Even though it plays into all the accusations of, oh, all he makes is gangster movies. It is, I think, probably his best movie. Pinnacle of his career, yeah. Yeah, I fucking love his late style stuff, though. That triptych of Silence, The Irishman, and Killers of the Flower Moon is just, chef's kiss. It's so fucking good. Yeah, because (laughs) Wolf of Wall Street, which is 2013, it's only three years before Silence, is distinctly different from those three, right? Like, it's not that same, I don't know, slow, large scope. Wolf is like this decade's Goodfellas. It's still entertaining, and it's like, oh, look at this guy behaving so terribly, and it's still decadent and exuberant, and, like, you want to watch him do these things, where, I mean, you still see people dressing up like Travis Bickle and shit for, like, Halloween. If you're talking about late period stuff, you're not going to see people in Ernest Burkhardt costumes or whatever. You'd probably fucking go to jail if you dressed up as Ernest (laughs) Burkhardt, right? (laughs) So. (laughs) So this is a movie... I actually haven't seen Last Temptation. Is that in a conversation with Silence at all? Like, are those two movies talking to each other in any way? Or Yeah, I think so. I think they both kind of tackle his white Catholic guilt a little bit. I haven't seen Last Temptation in forever. I did watch Silence more recently, but Killers of the Flower Moon. Been in production for quite a long time. It's based off a book by David Gran. And the full title of the book is Killers of the Flower Moon, The Osage Murders, and The Birth of the FBI. Have you guys read the book? No, I haven't. No, I haven't either. My mom has been trying to read this book forever. Oh, really? It's been on, like, back order at the library for a million years. She's, like, not going to wow. buy it. She's, like, trying to just get it from the library. And, like, people have just had it checked out for, like, the last million years. It's a popular book. It's, like, on the bestseller list. People are really... Yeah, it's really, really popular. I think... Grant has yeah. done a lot of really popular stuff. I mean, I read it before going to see the movie. Oh, nice. So what did you think? It's different. So the book is definitely structured as a whodunit kind of thing. It's like a procedural, you know, because it's called like the Osage murders and the birth of the FBI. So it's actually from the perspective of Tom White, the FBI guy, played by Jesse Plemons in the movie. And it's about, you know, uncovering the conspiracy to eliminate the Osage people to get the head rights to their wealth. And I can see how Scorsese could have taken this route maybe 20, 25 years ago, and he probably would have made a killer movie out of, like, a murder mystery of, like, who's doing this to the Osage people, right? But that's not what he did here, which I think is very, very impressive and very fitting with his late style. But the book is really good. Like, I finished it in, like, three days, maybe. Just can't put it down. So fucked up what these people did. The book is written really well. I really do like the book a lot. I've heard about the difference in focus between the book and the movie. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I definitely wanted to uh, touch on that if you didn't. It is a choice to take the book, which was, yeah, done it, a story about this FBI hero coming in and finding out what's going on, versus this movie, which is like, it's not a whodunit. You know who's done it the whole time. And you're Mm -hmm. watching them do it the entire time. From the beginning. Yeah, he's like rubbing your nose in it from the beginning. And so it's just a much more slow, painful way of going about it. That's completely different from probably what he would have done earlier. And different from the framing of the book. Yeah, plunging you into that complicity, right? a lot right? of people have been talking about, like, how this is a movie that's, like, not made from, like, the perspective of the Osage people. Mm-hmm. 
And I agree it's not. <laughs> it's, it's from right. the perspective of the perpetrators of the crime. Mm-hmm. You know, I think maybe he's not the guy to write from the Osage perspective, right? He's writing it from the perspective of the white American. Yeah. With a lot of cooperation from the Osage people. And there's a lot of dignity in this movie yeah, for the Osage yeah, absolutely. people. And I think this is probably the best case scenario for something like this. We'll get into it because there's definitely ways he reckons with his own complicity and like his own responsibility of telling this story, especially by the end of the movie, which I do want to get to, but I don't want to skip ahead too far. So what did we think of this movie overall? I like this a lot. It's long and it's slow. I won't bury the lead with those two things. Like, yeah, it's a very long movie. You know, you're going to be in the theater for about four hours. It's a slower movie for sure. It's very good. It's not very fun, right? Absolutely. I don't know. Like Goodfellas is obviously it's not nearly as long, but it's also a lot more fun. It's a faster and peppier, and that's just not what's going on here, right? How long is Goodfellas? Goodfellas is only a little bit more than two hours. Yeah. So not really comparable. This is, I guess, closer to The Irishman, right? Which is like yeah. almost the same exact running time. This is his late style, right? Like he's not going to do Goodfellas again. So it was funny because I came out of the theater and I heard some guy, some middle-aged guy, like, come out. He was like, well, it wasn't Goodfellas, that's for sure. Like, he was pretty upset about it. <laughs> He's not doing that anymore. He's he already did that movie. past that, you know? Yeah, he already did that. You're not going to get that again. And I think it's interesting because the beginning of his career and, like, even towards the end of his career, it's a lot of movies that are conveying, like, oh, sometimes it's fun to do violence. Sometimes it's fun to do bad things. And in the end, it does show that people will get their comeuppance for doing bad things. But there's a little glint of truth to like the criticisms of him like glamorizing these kinds of lifestyles, you know, with like Goodfellas and Casino and Wolf of Wall Street and stuff. But in his last trio of movies, he's done away with that entirely with Silence and The Irishman and Killers of the Flower Moon, right? So, yeah, I mean, we're not going back to that. So, Truffaut, who said there's no such thing as an anti-war film, right? Mm-hmm, right, exactly. Like that all war films are going to intentionally not glorify the shop victims. So that's kind mm-hmm. of the criticism against Scorsese is that oh, he's always glorifying these things, even as he's committed to criticize them. And I think if you don't realize that he's criticizing them, you're, like, not really watching these movies correctly, right? You've missed it if you don't yeah, think yeah, that yeah. he's criticizing these gangsters and these people. Like, he's not yeah. lauding these things and saying that they're commendable, but they're just because of the inherent glamour of the riches, of the violence, of the fast life, of the drugs and the women and all the things that he portrays. Like, it's difficult for him to get across his, yeah. his message because of the inherent glamour of, like, the subject matter. So... Mm-hmm. Uh, he's leaned very hard in these last two, probably not so much with silence, but in the last two, the Irishman and the killers leaning real yeah. hard into rubbing your nose into it and being like, okay, like, do you guys get it yet? Like, <laughs> Yeah. I don't know if you guys remember the Wolf of Wall Street press tour where he was doing interviews and people were asking about this stuff. And he was very dismissive of that criticism, which I think is very funny because he was like, you need me to come out and tell you that Jordan Belfort's a bad guy and, like, the things he's doing are bad? Like, come on, man. <laughs> it was, like, what he was saying, which I think is very, very which funny. Is a it was a very point. funny interview. Yeah. Yeah. You need me to hold your hand to say that that's bad. But on the other hand, I also think it's very interesting that he's 
let go of that entirely, that wrong-handed ambiguity you can get from that, from his earlier movies. And I really do like Killers of the Flower Moon a lot. This is like one of those things you said, Amir, like, Nine Inch Nails here for a bad time, right? <laughs> it's definitely one of those. <laughs> exactly. Yes, yes, yes. That's exactly it. What do you think, Derek? This is Scorsese, right? Mm-hmm. I think the craft of this movie is spectacular. I can't even remember the last time I watched a like Scorsese movie and I was just really taken back by the vistas, right? The world he kind of creates. And the shots he gets, like, I just think about that opening shot where it's kind of a slow pan drone over this pristine, I don't even know what you want to call it, like farm or landscape, right? And I think this is a quite well-crafted movie. Like, I think, you know, for being three and a half hours, it does move at a good pace. And Mm -hmm. you brought up the discussion of it's so long, you know, people are talking about, like, when they can go pee. Like, I had no urge to go pee whatsoever. Yeah, me neither. Like, I didn't get up. I was engaged the whole time, but I will say that I do think it is still a little long in the sense that like, I do think there were parts that probably weren't needed that I would have cut to maybe make this like a three hour movie, 315 maybe even. But I think my biggest issue with this movie, and we've already kind of touched with it, is that his choice in perspective. Mm. I haven't read the book, but I understood that he does change perspective in the book, right? And I remember during the production of this movie, you know, there was rumors and a lot of stories coming out like Leo was going to be the star, but then now Jesse Plemons is going to take over his role. But that's because they changed the perspective, right? Right. Because originally, I believe Leo was supposed to play the FBI agent. And then, you know, he had this kind of epiphany saying, I think the story needs to be told in a different way. And, you know, through the eyes of Ernest Burkhart, right? Mm-hmm. So it's already that these creatives have decided it's okay to divert from the book, but then it's disappointing that I kind of wish we saw more of the Osage side. I mean, this is solely told through the perspective of Burkhardt. I feel like there's moments in this where it was actually harder to watch, and maybe that's the point, but it's harder to watch than like Saw 10 a couple weeks ago, right? There is this kind of almost like torture porn element to it that I don't know, maybe in like 2023, we don't need to see a bunch of Osage women being murdered and not really giving their perspective. So it was really hard for me to reconcile that feeling. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I agree with that. I do think that there's a question of whether Marty is the right person to be telling the story. And, you know, there's a reckoning with that specific idea throughout the whole movie and especially towards the end with mm-hmm. its very, very surprise ending, which I love and we'll talk about later. But, you know, I think the reconfiguration of the script while it was being written, where Marty and Leo figured out that it wasn't working from the FBI perspective, and I think it was Leo who pointed out that it wasn't just that Ernest needed to be at the center of the story, but also Molly, you know, Lily Gladstone's character, his wife, and the centering of their marriage. I do think that Lily Gladstone's performance as Molly is probably an all-timer. I really, really love her performance. Yeah, she's amazing in this. People are counting the number of lines she has and how much screen time she Wait, has. what? Who's doing Yeah, that? a lot of people are like, oh, well, she's kind of sidelined for the movie. She's bedridden. Yeah, like that last third or whatever. I mean, she's in bed for a long time of the movie, but her performance is so strong. There's no 
second of this movie where I'm not thinking about her because her performance is so strong and that she's centering the Osage experience of those losses the entire movie. Like, it's brutal to watch. I think people do this a lot, especially with female characters, I think. I know people did it with Anna Paquin in The Irishman, Margot Robbie in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I think you can't really conflate quality of performance with number of lines or screen time. I just don't think it works that way. Mm -hmm. But I do get what you're saying, Derek. I think there's that tension in the movie, inherent in the movie, just having an old white guy direct this movie about Native American genocide, right? But it didn't bother me quite as much as it did bother you, I think. I kind of agree with Jeff in that I didn't feel that. It's an interesting, different perspective. And you're definitely like not alone as I'm reading people who've definitely like felt the same way as you on this one, Derek. Mm-hmm. I just think you're alone on the podcast, but like you're not alone in, <laughs> <laughs> in, in life. You know, you have your soldiers, but I didn't feel that. I didn't think it was like a torture porny thing. I felt like you were always kind of waiting for that other shoe to drop. And that was the draw, right? There was never the who done it drama and the catharsis Mm -hmm. of aha we caught the bad guy was never going to be that it was going to be okay when this is all finally revealed how devastating is the blow going to be all right well do we want to give a little bit synopsis before we head into spoilers yeah this movie takes place in the early 1920s i believe in osage county and it is about this systematic genocide of native americans by the white people to inherit their head rights, which are their claim to the oil money, because they might have been the richest people in the country at the time, but they had white intermediaries control the money. It basically centered around Ernest Burkhart, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, and William Hale, played by Robert De Niro, and their conspiracy to kill Ernest's wife and family for the money that they would inherit from their deaths. And it is about the uncovering of the conspiracy by the FBI. Three and a half hours of this, so it's not really an easy watch. But yeah, I think the decision to not play the whodunit game is a really, really good one. Just the beginning, it's not even a reveal. It's just obvious that Robert Nero's Bill Hill is responsible for it. And Leonardo DiCaprio's character, he just plays along with it. There's that tension of like, you know, did he actually love his wife? If he did love his wife, how is he capable of doing such horrible things? And I think some people are confused and saying that it's a sympathetic portrayal of Ernest Burkhart, which I don't agree with at all. I don't know if you guys remember in the movie, he's like, I just love money. I love it almost as much as I love my wife. And by watching the movie, you can tell that actually the opposite is true. Right. He definitely yeah. loves money more than his wife. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess my only problem, my one point of tension with the film is what you were saying. By not making a whodunit, you don't have that cathartic thing where you go, okay, here was the aha, here's the reveal, here's us bringing right, right, justice, right. right? And I know that's all intentional, but that does, I don't know, rob it maybe of some of the energy. Like the energy is there, it's potential energy, like a spring you've compressed of, okay, when, yeah. when Molly finds out what is going to happen. Right, that's where it is. It's built up there instead. And I think it's sort of quietly devastating, but it's not mm-hmm. a big explosion. And yeah. so you just wonder, okay, would it have been a more dramatic ending if you'd gone the other way? It would have been a completely different movie, as we talked about already. I was going to say, I have a question for you, Jeff, because you read the book. 
Does the book at all dive into their love story as much as like this movie does? It's less emotionally involved. I mean, just because it's from the perspective of the FBI and the investigation, it's mm -hmm. the general crimes against the Osage more than just the Kyle family. There's a bunch of other nasty shit that not just Bill Hale, but all the white people in Fairfax did that isn't mm -hmm. even in the movie. And I think the movie centers around the Molly Kyle and her family and the deaths of all her sisters much more than the book does. And I think a lot of the relationship stuff is extrapolated, like not from the book, right? So I mean, I asked this question because I think that's just kind of one aspect of the movie that didn't entirely work for me was the love story between Ernest and Molly. From the beginning, it feels more like a transaction, right? It feels more like, you know, this is something he has to do to please his uncle. I mean, mm -hmm. the way I read it, he tells himself this lie that he loves his wife only to cover for himself. His actions keep showing that he doesn't actually love his wife. He knowingly poisons her. He lies to her at the end. I don't know. I think this focus on trying to get us to believe in this love story when... I just don't think, and it, like you said, it's not really in the book. I, I don't know if it's just something that he is trying to fabricate for this story, but that's just something that didn't quite work for me. I think it's interesting that didn't work for you because I don't think it's supposed to work for you. I think you're supposed to be asking those questions, right? Oh, interesting. Like, how could he say he loves his wife when he's doing these things? And, you know, watching from the beginning of the movie, like you said, Derek, it seems like his uncle, Bill Hale, set up the marriage for him. Is this love actually real? What kind of love abides murder? That's true. That's a natural inclination to question that. See, I did buy that he loved his wife, actually. I just think he's a, also a weak and stupid person. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so yeah. <laughs> he was easily bullied into doing things that he knew he shouldn't do. Right. Mm -hmm. And he's not lying mm -hmm. just to dodge the consequences of his actions, but also because I think he is ashamed of himself and what he's done. And he does know right from wrong. He does know he's doing evil the entire time. And he does it anyway. Mm -hmm. I don't know. For me, the love story actually totally works. I do buy it. Like, yeah, he's pushed into it by his uncle at the beginning. It's like, hey, you know, she's a rich widow. This would be a good catch for you. But I mean, I don't know. He seems like he's not too hard to please in that category. He loves women. Women are his weakness. He says that, you know. He loves women. He loves money. She's rich. You know, she's portrayed in this movie as like a very charming, intelligent, like attractive person. I don't think it's hard to see how he could have actually fallen in love with her here. I just think that he's ultimately a, just a very bad person. Maybe I'm just too simple-minded, but I took it straight. I read it as okay. Like, I thought that love story was actually pretty charming in that first, I don't know, 45 minutes or whatever. No, yeah, I think it works to lull us in at the end it starts to get really stretching i guess us as an audience to like keep focusing on this story as a love story you know we've been talking a lot on the earnest side of things but even like the molly character by the end i'm like what is going on here clearly this person may not have killed your entire family but had a hand in it but you are still riding a carriage with his brother you're meeting him in this neutral ground and it feels like you know as long as he tells the truth you're gonna give him a ch like i don't know that's how i read that last scene but maybe you guys are reading it totally different but it seems like he's trying to push both sides of these people like love each other but like i just never 
I don't believe in this love story. It's just so mm-hmm. see, I totally believe it. At least for me, I think you have to believe it a little bit because I think Yeah. Otherwise that devastating insulin scene at the end isn't as devastating, right? Like if she already is out of love with him, then that's not the nail in the coffin, right? But I think it is supposed to be. So I think you're supposed mm-hmm. to believe that, yeah, like even after all of it, she does still love this man. Still the father of her children. They had a very good relationship for a long time, even though he fucking blew up her sister. <laughs> she can still find a way to forgive him until he finally demonstrates that he really has learned nothing, hasn't changed, isn't repentant. Just continues to lie to her that last little bit. But I do buy the love story there, even up till the very end. I think love's weird. Are these two the worst people in Scorsese's filmography of bad men? I think the intimacy of Ernest's betrayal is pretty fucking hard to stomach. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I do think that like, the poisoning the insulin thing is the final straw. Because it really is. Like, you can you can kind of get how, all right, you were bullied into doing this. But, like, if you say you love me and you love our family, like, how could you have gone along with poisoning me for all this time? Yeah. Like, that does seem like it is the final straw. I think that is some of the lowest things that a character like that has ever done. Even though I think maybe you could argue that some of the other characters, like, I don't know, maybe kill more people or are more brutal or vicious. I think the intimacy of that kind of betrayal makes Ernest, like, the fucking worst. And Robert De Niro is such a beady-eyed fuck in this movie. He's so awful. Just the reveals in the beginning of the movie. Molly's sister Minnie, is it? Who's already sick. And then the mom's sick, too. And, you know, he gives a little wink about, like where the sickness comes from. Dude, he's so awful. He's so yeah shitty. We have been, like, kind of giving short shrift to the fact that Gorsese does do these little reveals throughout the movie. It mm-hmm. isn't all, like, immediately up front. Like, oh, this is yeah, the entire yeah, yeah. plan, right? It is revealed yeah. slowly over the course of the three and a half hours. And there are little bits and pieces there, the winks and nods and clues and... I did think it was outright surprising when you see the little flashback and you see that Leo, uh, you know, killed the PI. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, it's slowly revealing how deep into this he is. Because you know he's involved from the beginning. Yeah, even the very beginning when you, when you see him robbing people, you're like, holy shit, this guy really is a piece of shit, right? Like, I do yeah. remember that moment of surprise. So I do, I do think there are these little surprises in there. And even through the end, I hadn't fully gotten, I think, until the end how artificial the sickness was. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. wasting Until disease it's confirmed that, oh, yeah, he's been poisoning the entire family. It's like, yeah. holy shit, that's fucked. You know, Leo is supposed to be the star of this movie, right? Like, this is really told in the perspective of Ernest Burkhart for, like, most of the movie. You know, like, you know, for probably 90% of the movie. And I think he's the third best actor in this movie. You know, I put, I think, Lily Gladstone and Robert De Niro over his performance. Brendan Fraser? <laughs> <laughs> yes, Brendan Fraser. John Lithgow. I honestly want to give some praise to Robert De Niro because, like, this might be my favorite role of his in a long time. Yeah. Like, I think there is something slimy about his character that by the end of it, you don't believe in this guy, but you believe that he believes, right? That he's still on their side, Mm -hmm. that he is still somehow helping them, that he is still like a friend to them. Yeah. That's a great point, because when he's first introduced, you're like, oh, how bad can this guy be? He's like a beloved benefactor of the community. He speaks the language, and he's all yes, buddy with like speaking the, the language elders. Is so yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. He's just the biggest murderous the piece of school shit. And- it's all to kill their women and get all the oil money. It's fucking disgusting, this guy. Yeah. 
So the scheme is that the white men marry, marry the women. woman and then kill them and inherit the uh, the head rights for the oil. The head right? rights, yeah. yeah. And you even yeah, see yeah. In, the, in the early montage of all the murdered Osage. And I didn't realize this was the guy. I thought he'd hired a killer to do it. But it's actually the husband shoots his own wife in the street. Yeah. Mm-hmm. From their house. And then, like, runs out and picks up the baby. It's ins- fully insane. Yeah. That was one of the harder ones to watch when you see just a woman get shot point blank, her child nearby. Like, that's a really hard one. Oh, yeah. Like, all the violence in this is horrific. It's none of yeah. the Scorsese's sometimes violence is fun, right? Like, it's all hard punctuation, like, quick shots in the head. And then all the poisonings are such indignities. It's just sick stuff. Yeah. Part of it, too, is that sometimes the violence in these other movies is violence of man on man or criminal on criminal. It's a gangster killing another gangster. Yeah, right, 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 right. But this is like men killing their wives. indigenous women, yeah. Yeah, like men killing their wives or nastily misogynistic violence in a way that he hasn't portrayed uh, so much in the past. Um, Not that he hasn't portrayed misogynistic violence, but like this is some other shit. I mean, there's a lot of stuff I want to talk about, but I want to go back to one of your points, Amir, about like how he kind of reveals slowly over time throughout this whole movie. And I think it's well-crafted in the sense that this movie can reward multiple viewings, right? The guy who is the one that works at the bank, who hands out the funds to everybody or like oversees the funds. Isn't he the head of the Ku Klux Klan? Like, wasn't he the Yeah, he's like a KKK commander or whatever, because- They do a rally in town. He takes off his mask and it's the bank guy. You're like, holy fuck. And then I think one of the townspeople is like in the jury for Mm -hmm. Burkhardt. I think it works really well at the end where like, you know, all these people you've suspected, are they shady? Like all these white people in the movie basically that seem to be working with William Hale and his family. And then it just culminates when Burkhardt is asked to come see his lawyer and like all those people are just standing in that room staring him down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's confirming like everybody from this town is in on Somehow this, right? Like on this everyone is yeah. Yeah. yeah, like working towards trying to like get these head rights, screw these people over. I never thought about it in terms of the broader conspiracy, but that's a really good point is that I thought of it as this goes to show the extent of Hale's influence, but you're right. They are all mm-hmm. morally culpable, right? So they, yeah. it does go and indict the broader white society and they're like anti-indigenous violence. That's a really good point. And if you read the book, it's more like, you know, Hale's just a piece of this web of conspiracy to kill all these people and kill all these indigenous women, right? But yeah, there are a bunch of like little scenes that just suck the air out of the room. This isn't something in the book. You see that one scene of Bill Hale watching the Tulsa riots, which we talked about in our Watchmen podcast. Mm -hmm. These two are just separate atrocities in in American history that we don't really talk about and a lot of people don't know. And I think that one TV series and now this movie are just putting it under the spotlight for some people to see for the first time. And, you know, that scene of Bill Hill watching the Tulsa riots and you can see like the gears turning in his head. And I read that as that's how he got the he idea the to idea, blow up right? the house, right? Yeah. That's another like insidious layer to this movie that was really effective for me. I guess I didn't catch that. I didn't read it like that, but I definitely could see how you read that. I mean, that was actually one part of the movie where I was like, 
this was a little too heavy handed. The funny thing is I walked into this movie like realizing what they were doing. I was like, oh, this is kind of like Black Wall Street for it to then actually like show us that take time. I think not even once. I think it mentions it multiple times in this movie. I thought was a little heavy handed. Oh, I love the line that they drew from that because they're both. Yeah, me too. Wealthy people of color. Like the wealthiest people in the country are the Osage Native Americans and Mm -hmm. the black community in Tulsa, right? And to draw that line, I think you kind of have to, especially when those two events are so concurrent. I didn't mind that at all. Yeah, I liked it too. I didn't think it was too heavy handed. I I think it's difficult for movies to be too heavy handed for me. I'm a dumb guy. I like explanations. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not bothered by that sometimes. I thought it was good. Just hammer that theme home again and again. I was going to ask you guys, this is maybe just me, but this might be the first time I found Leonardo DiCaprio, the actor, like the person, distracting. And like seeing him in this movie. I agree with you, actually. I agree with you a little bit. Interesting. I think that's maybe like my one criticism of the movie is probably with Leo a little bit. It didn't detract from my experience watching the movie, but go on, finish. I want to hear what you want to say about Leo. Me and you are maybe on the same level. Like, he's good. Like I said, he's good. Oh, yeah, he's good. He's great. He's Leo. He's a great actor. And I don't know, maybe it was just the teeth. You know what I mean? Like, if he wasn't wearing, like, the makeup and just, like, heavily, like, every time he grinned, you just saw his teeth. It's all these elements taking me out of the movie, and all I could see was, like, it's Leo. So you're talking about, like, the aesthetic theatricality of his performance the way yes. he looks okay yeah. oh. mm-hmm. like what are you talking about so someone mentioned this i don't know who it was but they mentioned that leo is kind of a selfish scene partner and i kind of agree with that mm. oh. especially scenes with molly he loves to act and he loves to like suck up all the attention onto him in a scene no matter what when sometimes you need to give a little to your other scene partner. And I think you get a little bit of that with him here with Lily Gladstone. Don't get me wrong, Lily Gladstone gets plenty to chew on and she's fucking fantastic. But there's a little bit of like Leo trying to hog the spotlight with his emoting sometimes that a lighter touch would have been better in some of the scenes, I think. I can't help but keep thinking like, what if... Jesse Plemons was Ernest Burkhart. Yeah, I think mm. that might have been good too. I fucking love Jesse Plemons so much. He's so yeah, good. I think he's great. I couldn't stop thinking about that. I think it did need to be a little bit more subtle, a little bit less commanding than I thought it was at times. And See, I think that's a cool idea. I didn't think of that at all while I was watching it. I like it. I'm going to make my argument for Leo though. Okay. That, first of all, I like the teeth. That actually, for me, made it less distracting. I'm like, oh, it's not just like perfect teeth Leonardo DiCaprio in 1920. <laughs> Those teeth have seen iPhones. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know what I mean? It's so, like, I'm glad they changed it. Like, I was like, all right, good. They're doing something to make him look a little skeevy and shady. I like this teeth are fucked up, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And part of the drive of the romance of that first 45 minutes to an hour is – the fact that he looks like Leonardo DiCaprio, right? Like he's an attractive, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. good-looking, handsome man. And he also is charming, right? Mm-hmm. And an actor. And the whole movie is him acting and lying and being big, like, and covering mm-hmm. up with bluster. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. No, so it didn't bother me at all. Um, I'll have to watch and see if I can pick up. Yeah, no, that is a good point. But like, I think, yeah, I don't know. For me, it was like totally dead on. I don't think Jesse Plemons. I'm not sure he can't get big, but I don't think he's big enough for this. Like, I think the style Mm. that you're wanting to see, I think, is antithetical to what like that role is. Like, he's quiet in that he's subservient to hell, but he's not quiet. He's like going out drinking and loud and making friends and everyone likes him. Yeah. And he's, you know what I mean? Like he's a mm-hmm, mm-hmm. charismatic no, bring, bullshitter. Yeah, that's a good point. You yeah. Um, Charming dimwit, right? <laughs> yeah, yes. absolutely. Yeah. Evil himbo. <laughs> you were asking, Jeff, is this the dumbest character Leo's ever played? Probably. Probably. So, yeah. Dude, he is I was telling Amir that dumb. someone said uh, he simple jacked it. I don't quite agree with that, but I think that was a funny <laughs> comparison. He's not like mentally challenged, you know, but. Yeah. He has trouble reading, for example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like reading yeah. is like not mm-hmm. his thing. You can tell he's not fully understanding the conversation that Hale's having with him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But he pretends to. He's like, yeah, 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 I get it. He keeps screwing up yeah. and, like, acting impulsively. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. Like, he's clearly supposed to be a dumb guy in addition to not having moral fiber. He's right? such a coward, too. Yeah. yeah like, you were asking yeah. earlier, like, how can you believe a guy like this could do this? Because he's just weak and cowardly and dumb. Some people are complaining that he gets, like, a moment of redemption at the end where he voices his regrets. But I don't agree with that at all. I think he's still a fucking coward. And that moment comes way yeah. too late. And I think he's more sorry that he's caught than, like, sorry he did those things, right? What like, moment of redemption? I don't even know what are they talking about. What moment is that? Well, when he's talking to Molly and then when he turns on his uncle, right, in the prison cell. Oh, yeah, yeah, But that's yeah. just too late. You're too late. You already did all those and things. And he lied to her face about the insulin. Yeah. He gave up on that deal, right? He had a deal with the FBI and he gave up on it because he was so easily bullied by that cadre of conspirators, right? He was so easily bullied into be like, no, no, I gotta protect my uncle. It was pretty crazy to see him flip and flip and flip back. Like, it's wild. Yeah. It's a little interesting to find out that real-life Ernest Burkhardt was in his early 20s, I think, when all of this was taking place, you know? When yeah, was like- and Bill Hale was in his 40s. Yeah, I was gonna yeah. mention that. It is interesting to find that out, but I think Scorsese wanted to work with these two actors, and so it is yeah, what it yeah. is. They're like his muses, right? Uh, Leo and Robert De Niro. Have you seen pictures of them, though, in real life? Bill Hale and... No. I have, yeah. Ernest Burkhardt? They were like a hard mid-20s and hard mid-40s. I actually think they did okay <laughs> with yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Robert De Niro and Leonardo DiCaprio. They were fucking rough-looking. I mean, that's the times, though, right? It was the 1920s. They didn't have fucking, like, sunscreen or antibiotics. Or- so... I actually really wanted to spotlight one particular actor, and that was the Louis Caselmi? The Kelsey Morrison character, mm. the guy who does like the Anna Brown murder, and he has that great scene in the court where he like describes Anna's death. Yeah, and it is just absolutely yeah, so cold. Cold. Yeah, it's insane. Yeah. Calculated. It is such a great scene, and it's so great that I kind of wish we didn't see Anna's murder. Yeah. I think that was enough. Like, it was just so shocking the way he's telling it. It's like, we just stood her up and the brother held her up and I shot her in the head. And that was it. And we went drinking. I don't know if you guys agree, but like, I didn't actually need to see her get shot in the head. Yeah. It's like those small little things that I think could have been cut out of this movie to make it just a little tighter. Honestly, I've never seen this guy before and I freaking loved him in this role. I don't know where Scorsese, just sometimes he finds these people and they're great. He was in The Irishman too. 
Oh, was he? I didn't even yeah. remember. But I also want to highlight Kara Jane Myers as Anna. She's so good in this yes. movie. Yeah. Yes. She's so good as the sister. Yeah. And her character's so interesting. It's almost like she is who she is and like wants to be of the Osage pride. But then there's also like this person who's like out there going out every night partying and, and getting wasted. Getting wasted and being very much in the quote unquote like white culture, right? American sloppy culture. Drunk. Yeah. yeah, she was getting white girl wasted. <laughs> <laughs> I found her character so fascinating. So fascinating. So they give the native actors a lot of little moments that made them seem like real people. That little moment where Lizzie Q, played by Tantu Cardinal, which is Molly's mom, they're talking about who their favorite daughter is. And it's like, oh, it's Anna. The mom's <laughs> playing favorites and stuff. They're little humanizing moments that are not just like, oh, just props to be murdered, right? They feel like real people. Mm-hmm. And I do want to highlight Rodrigo Prieto and Thelma Shoemaker, the DP and the editor for this movie, which... They always do fucking phenomenal work, but I think a lot of the violence, the horrible stuff that happens in this movie is so starkly shot, but then there's a very deep reverence to like the Native American culture, and all of the great visual flourishes are with that, right? Like the beginning of the movie where they have that great shot of the Osage bearing that peace pipe, you know, lamenting like the encroachment of the white man the black oil shooting out of the ground and doing the dance and it's like in slow motion. It's the last time they're happy about like this oil before it turns into this curse of wealth that dooms their people, right? You even get like a little surreal moment when Lizzie Q dies from the poisoning and like it's her family wailing in grief around her and then suddenly she's like being welcomed by her ancestors in the afterlife dude it's so good i was not expecting at all it was so effective i love that yeah the seeing the owl stuff starting yeah the owl oh mvp owl (laughs) yeah Yeah, my favorite owl actor of the year for sure (laughs) yeah yeah, screw all those Harry Potter owls. <laughs> Martin Scorsese owls. And maybe the last thing I would particularly like to bring up is the way he plays with time in this movie mm-hmm. was, I think, really well done. I think it jumps months, years at a time, and it's just so seamless. Like, all of a sudden, you know, he has kids. The younger sister is sick, but then all of a sudden she's dead. It never feels like this is all happening within a week. He's still able to relay, this is a slow burn, right? This is a slow Mm -hmm. process for them to screw over this family and these people. And without obvious title cards, it still was able to really effectively portray time without being so obvious about it, which I thought was really well done. Yeah, the time jumps aren't jarring at all. So I totally agree with you there. I don't think it covers that much time either. It's what from like 1919 to... It's enough where like his kids aren't babies, right? By the end of this movie. Is it like 10 years that the movie takes place over? Yeah. Uh, Yeah, maybe. Maybe just barely? I still think that's I think a it's decent probably amount of time. A couple of years, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there anything else you guys want to bring up? Yeah, the ending. Martin Scorsese podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Martin Scorsese podcast. Well, if you want to take away what he's trying to say, he probably fucking hates podcasts, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I really like this movie, and I think this ending catapults it into like maybe all timer with Scorsese I think puts it in like the top five top ten depending on my attitude at the time you know like I said in the beginning of the episode switching in one of the late period Martin Scorsese movies for another one interchangeable but this ending is so unexpected 
a lot of people were talking about this ending as the movie was coming out, and I think I would have been mad if I was spoiled. Like, I would have been mad if someone gave this away, I think. This movie, it doesn't end on an afterwards of what happened to the people, but it ends on a little flash forward to a radio play. Larry Fessenden is in it. Jack White from The White Stripes is in it, which is very funny. And they are doing, like, a radio show reenactment of the Osage murders. They go through, like, the entire story and, like, what happened to Ernest and Bill Hill after the events of the movie. And then Martin Scorsese comes out. He reads Molly's obituary. She dies just maybe a decade after the events of the movie at age 50 in 1937. I don't know. What did you guys think of this? What did you guys think of this ending and like what it meant? I thought it was a cool coda. I don't know that I took a ton away from it in terms of significance. I'm interested to hear what you think. I think this ending added more value once I kind of learned a little bit of the history, you know, knowing that this was like something that actually happened, right? Like FBI actually put on these like radio shows to like promote their service, to promote the FBI. And mm-hmm. this was one of the stories that they told the Osage murders, but very much like this was how the story got out about these people. And that's kind of it, right? There wasn't much fanfare in the sense of, you know, it wasn't this big thing in the papers. It was more like, hey, it was just uh, an afternoon story from the FBI. And I understand what he's trying to do with this ending, right? To kind of relate it back to real life, especially that line he adds at the end of the obituary, right? Saying there was no mention of the murders in her obituary, right? There's Mm -hmm. no mention of her dead family and Mm -hmm. everything. To kind of end the movie on this, to end it in the same way, I guess, reality has it. I mean, again, leaves a little bit of a sour taste just because like real life ended like this doesn't mean we need to end this like this. For me, he's trying to say, like, you know, we're trying to do these people service, but is he really doing them service if he's then kind of ending their story in the same way it was ended before? I mean, he just spent three and a half hours telling you he does spend three what and the hours obituary yeah. didn't, right? So yeah. it's him reckoning with his own place in whether he gets to tell the story or not. And I think that's really interesting. And, you know, like this radio play getting these murders on air as entertainment. And, you know, like, they've got, like, the Foley sound effects. Yeah. It's like the deaths of real Native American people, and they're doing, like, little sound effect gunshots and, like, horse trotting and, like, the little sound effects and stuff for entertainment. And this fits in with, you know, Scorsese's late style perfectly, where he's really grappling with how his earlier films were essentially that, right? And then now he's doing something different and he wants to put attention on that and question his own place, his own footprint on like the cinematic landscape and what he's doing. And, you know, with the last three movies, it's not like that anymore. To insert himself is to maybe take a little responsibility. Some self-indictment there. I wasn't too keen on him inserting himself in this situation. Mm. I'm already struggling with the fact that he's the director of this movie, right? He's trying to tell the story <laughs> and then he himself in. gives himself the last word. He's the last thing that you see in this movie, right? Here in this movie. So I did struggle with that. But he's not painting himself as a hero, right? No. He's no, inserting no. himself no. in the role of a radio play that makes light of the situation as maybe one of his older films might have done. And I think that's kind of a courageous thing to do and it pulls into question whether he's the right person to tell the story. And I think that's a question he wants us to ask, right? He's not like, oh, you can't ask that. I can make whatever movie I want. 
he's very, very cognizant of that criticism. And I think in his older age, he's trying to reckon with that idea. And to put that in a movie is so unexpected. And I think the layers of that is really, really interesting. He's not a fourth wall breaker usually, right? No, it's not even a fourth wall break. It's not like, oh, I directed this movie and you should take it seriously. It's not like that, right? He's not Martin Scorsese in this scene. He's like one of the performers for the radio play and he just happens to read out Molly's obituary that doesn't mention the murders at all. Yeah, so it's not a fourth wall break, which would have been weird, I think. So, uh, Is there anything else you guys want to bring up? I think this is worth seeing. It's a really interesting movie about a set of murders that I wouldn't have known anything about if I hadn't seen this. I think it unveils like this really interesting, creepy episode of American history. And, and it's Martin Scorsese, so like I don't think you can go wrong. I know it's long. Yeah, just whatever. Take a pee break. You can miss five minutes in the middle of the movie. Uh, it'll be fine. Just go watch this one. It's great. Yeah. If any movie can lose money at the box office and be three and a half hours long. It's a Martin Scorsese movie, right? He's earned the right, I think. Mm -hmm. I think any studio should gladly take a $200 million write down just to get a Martin Scorsese movie on the big screen because we're going to miss him when he's gone and that time is coming and he knows it too and that's why he's making these movies in a different mode than he has been before. Mm -hmm. Swinging for the fences, huh? Yeah. Man, I'm going to be really upset when he goes... Just all the things he's doing for cinema, too. The World Cinema Foundation and all that. Bringing voices to independent filmmakers. Real champion of cinema. Bringing those Marvel movies to the Criterion Collection. (laughs) (laughs) Dude, it's so annoying. There's so many good things you could be talking about for this movie. And now it's just fucking Scorsese versus Marvel. And runtime discussion and pee breaks and all that shit. Did you guys see that some theaters are... Inserting Man, doing an actual intermission. intermission. Yeah. And well, they were. Yeah. Thelma Shoemaker was like, uh, fuck you guys. Don't do that. You're messing with the <laughs> vision of the movie. And I agree with her. I'm on her side. Yeah. Like, I get why the theaters wanted to do it or whatever. But uh, I think you got to take a hard line on trying to adhere to the artist's vision here. Right? Like, it wasn't designed with an intermission. So... No intermission. Like, where would you put an intermission, right? Like, where would you put an intermission? I mean, I absolutely agree with Amir. If it wasn't designed for it, we shouldn't just be putting, like, a weird cut. It's like, you know, if you watch a YouTube video or something where, like, all of a sudden it just cuts and you're like, what the fuck? Or you're listening to a podcast and you're like, what the hell? They just inserted a a commercial. Uh, Yeah. yeah, It would be really weird. So, like, this movie's only 20 minutes longer than Avengers Endgame. You didn't see people complaining about that shit. I will say that I am a little tired of all of this Marvel versus... Dude, Scorsese it's so dumb. Like, it's not his fault. And I think both sides are at fault here where it's like people picking on him, but then also weaponizing him, like using his words as something like, hey, see, Scorsese said this or Scorsese did that. I don't that, think like he that. actually just, cares that much, but people keep asking no, he doesn't. Him. It's people. Yeah. yeah, people keep using him. And it's like, I'm so tired of it. Every fucking interview is like, what do you think of Marvel movies? What do you think of Marvel yeah. movies? When, you know, he's giving like, so many insights on how he's making these movies, what he's doing, the stories he wants to tell, and how much time he has left. But all people can ask is, like, what do you think of Marvel movies? It's so ridiculous. It's so stupid. Yeah. It's really weird if you think about it, right? Because you're, like, a film journalist, like, ostensibly, and, like, that's all you can think of to ask? Yeah. It is sort of bizarre. Like, I never thought about it before, but, like, yeah, it is really weird. 
Especially because, like, Martin Scorsese's talking to you, too. It's not just, like, yeah. he's, like, doing interviews with mcufans.com or some shit, right? Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 Like, he's not talking to every Tom, Dick, and Harry out there either, right? Not like we could get him on the pod. So, like, presumably he's only talking to vetted sources or whatever. They're still doing this shit? If you get to have, like, a soundbite from Marty himself, you have maybe three, four minutes at most and you're going to ask him about MCU movies? You're going to ask him about superhero movies? I would fucking never. Come on, man. Yeah. But I got to ask you guys a non-related question. Killers of the Flower Moon or Oppenheimer? Ooh. <laughs> that one's hard. Uh, Oppenheimer was more fun to watch, but I think Killers was better. Yeah, I, agree. I might agree on that one. Yeah, I agree. Like Oppenheimer flew for a three-hour movie. Right, I think we talked about that. Yeah, this you felt the weight of this one, and you felt the length of this one, but like that's the intent. So yeah, out of all of us, had my issues with both those movies, but yeah, I think I agree with you, Amir. I think this was probably still the better movie. I agree. I think this movie has more things to say, and it's a little more complicated than Oppenheimer. You know? Yeah. There's like a trio of movies this year that are very interesting about atrocities committed and the perspective is from the perpetrators. You have the zone of interest, which you guys haven't seen yet. And then you have Killers of the Flower Moon and then you have Oppenheimer, right? You know, Oppenheimer is a little more conventional. It's like getting the gang back together, detonating the bomb, and then a more peppy pace with the final court scene reveals. It doesn't really have too much to say other than the bomb was bad, right? Which is a perfectly fine thing to say, and I think the movie's great. It's one of my favorites of the year, but I think Killers of the Flower Moon is kind of on another level, especially with that ending and what it's trying to do. I think they're both pretty major. They're both pretty good. I like them both. Killers of the Flower Moon or Quantumania? (laughs) (laughs) Now you're starting the discourse. (laughs) You're perpetuating the discourse. (laughs) All right, all right. I'm done. I'm done. I haven't even seen it yet, but the Marvels. (laughs) Obviously, obviously. Oh, God. All right. Well, okay. I think that will be the final word. I think that will conclude this week's episode. Jeff, where can people find more of your work? You can find me on my blog at strangeharbors.com where I reviewed Killers of the Flower Moon. And you can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at strangeharbors. What about you guys? Uh, you can find me on all the dating apps advertising that I am not going to slowly poison my wife. <laughs> <laughs> Your things is knows how to inject insulin. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Actual insulin in parentheses, not poison. <laughs> yes. Derek, where can people find you? <laughs> Uh, you can find me at the world's okayest photos on Instagram. But if you like this podcast, the easiest way to support our show is to subscribe where you get your podcast, whether it be Apple, Spotify, Google, or any of the other popular apps. If you're listening to us on Apple or Spotify, please do us a favor and give us a great rating. It really helps to get our voices out to more people. Yeah, if you have any questions, comments, suggestions on our episode on Killers of the Flower Moon or Martin Scorsese, feel free to shoot us an email at jeff at strangeharbors.com. We like getting listener mail, and sometimes we read it out on the pod. And with that, we will see you guys next week. See you next week, everybody. See you guys then.